Hey everyone, Eric Renier here, and welcome to the 43rd episode of The Writ Podcast. On Wednesday night, the Conservative Party held its first official debate in its leadership contest in Edmonton. It was a fast-paced, tightly scripted affair that will be followed by another debate in French on May 25th. Time is running out to make a big impression, though, as the deadline for signing up new members is on June 3rd, now only three weeks away. So to discuss the latest from that race, and also a little bit about the ongoing Ontario election campaign, I'm joined this week by the CPC's Aaron Wary and McLean's Auto Bureau Chief, Shannon Proudfoot. Hello. Hey. Hi. So it was an interesting debate, and there's lots of important questions that I, I have for you. But the first one is, what are you guys reading right now? <laughs> I only read the writ. Uh, <laughs> That's correct answer. Are you going to use uh, this... The- from now on, all conversations should have sad trombone sound effects. Yeah, I think so. Well, just I would improve. not even for cutting people off. Just whenever somebody says something slightly bleak. Yeah, I always have a trombone. book going at all times. As soon as I finish a book, I start another one. So some of them, it it boggled the mind for me that some of them didn't appear to be reading a book or hadn't read a book for a while. I don't know if uh, you two are any different. Or were, or were too scared to say what they were reading because they hadn't done any focus group polling on it to figure out whether that would be a good thing or a bad thing. That was it. Yeah. So I had a debate with a friend. Uh, a journalist friend who will remain unnamed by a text last night when Pierre Polyev said that he was currently reading Jordan Peterson's 12 rules, which is what, five or seven years old by this point. I texted a friend and said, there is absolutely no way he is actually reading that book right now, as opposed to that being his focus group answer. And the friend came back and said, no, no, I believe it. He was, you know, he's going to be on his podcast. Um, yeah, if they, I, I just, I mean, I'm a feature writer. I like human details. And I found that entire section of the debate, a total waste of time. And if it was meant to show a human face, the fact that they all looked like raccoons caught like rummaging <laughs> through someone's garbage can when your car pulls into the driveway and the headlines hit them when they asked them what they were reading or watching is not a great sign of the ability of these people to just be people. It was bad. Show some, show some humanity. And then they, yeah, that was the most challenging aspect of the entire debate. Yeah, I did, I, I, I did like, find it funny that uh, and surprising that Les and Lewis had last watched Bridgerton. I thought that was the and she, she seemed to really enjoy it. You know what? I watched Bridgerton, too, and it was good. So I'm not going to complain. I also watched Bridgerton and thought it was good. I did not think it was a documentary about Regency era race politics. But anyway, <laughs> that that did strike me as somewhat unusual. The comment uh, that she made about Bridgerton uh, anyway. So let's actually talk about the substance. Actually, First, we're not going to talk about the substance because I know it's very easy to criticize the format of the debate. Um, so we should do that first just to get it out of the way. Uh, Aaron, what did you think of the quality of the debate and the format? I didn't think it was much of a debate. Uh, you know, I don't know whether this was a reaction to last week when, it, you know, fists were flying and it was a, it was a free for all and there were lots of there was lots of concern about there being too much fighting in the last debate and whether they intentionally tried to tamp this one down. But they, you know, you have two hours and you describe it as a debate and then you really only save the last hour for any kind of anything that could be reasonably described as debate. You know, you have this kind of <clears throat> this very sort of quick round of uh, you have 15 seconds to state your position on a complicated matter of geopolitics. Uh, then you move into the lighthearted. What are you watching on Netflix these days round? And then when they finally got around to the debate section, they hand out those paddles and basically say, okay, so yeah, this is the debate section, but you only have so many opportunities to debate, to debate so be careful how you use it. And, and so what you got was the last 20 minutes to a half hour of the debate only featured a couple people because everybody else had used up their opportunities. It was a very, I don't know, I, 
I, to me, everyone overthinks these things. Like instead of just having a debate, everyone feels they need to kind of uh, try to like control things or make sure everyone's held accountable. Or I don't, I don't know what the, the impulse is exactly, but it, no one seems willing to just sort of say, hey, what are you guys gonna do about climate change? You have 20 minutes, go and let them talk about it. And, uh, you know, there were some, there were, we'll get to it, there were some pretty significant moments last night, but it wasn't really a debate. Now, Shannon? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I feel like everyone who's designing debates lately is trying to be like too cute by half. I, I mean, just to jump off what Aaron said to make a sort of like very pragmatic point, I would think that most of this was already planned by the time last week's debate took place. So even if we want to be charitable and think this was some kind of response, they must have already had this sort of sliced and diced plan ready to go in some form. Um, if if you're if they were looking and they being the, the people who planned this debate, the people who planned the leaders debate, uh, the federal leaders debate last fall, if you're looking to solve the problem of too much crosstalk where it's just a shouting match and no one can hear anything, you could cut mics. That would be a lot less um, sort of elaborate and annoying than the kind of paddle idea. Um, and yeah, there wasn't much interplay here. It, it was kind of, we, we kind of keep getting these debates that are sort of like staged press conferences or game shows where it's like, you know, 15 seconds, state your opinion on this complex policy matter, go. Like you're running around like an old school, like shopping spree game show, trying to throw things in your cart. Um, and nobody learns anything. And there's, you don't even get to see, you know, to the extent that you want to see fireworks and sort of see candidates testing their ideas against each other. You don't get that either. I, I just don't feel like any of us got much illumination from last night or, or even if you want to be really crass about it, entertainment, frankly. Well, there was a sad trombone, which. Uh, That's true. I'm not giving enough credit to the sad trombone. It was pretty <laughs> that was made me so uncomfortable. But is, the way that uh, some of the debate unfolded, it was just bizarre because, yes, they ran out of all their paddles because they hadn't thought about their paddle management strategy going into the debate, which is one of the key. Which is a that, real failure for a future leader of the country. You got to manage your paddles. And paddle management, what, yeah. what happened was that at one point, they had to choose their sparring partners and they all decided it seemed to not spar with Poliev. So he didn't speak as Aaron said for the last 20, 30 minutes. And so you had this four and a half minute debate on Northern Canada between Scott Aitchison and Roman Babber. They both agreed on everything and it went back and forth a minute here, a minute here, 45 seconds here, 45 seconds, 30 seconds. And by the end, Scott Aitchison said, I don't have anything left to say, <laughs> but the, the structure <laughs> of the debate required him to speak. So he spoke for a little bit. And then Babber came on and talked about lockdowns because he didn't have anything else to say about Northern Canada either. It was, it was it, yes, it wasn't the best use of everybody's time, but <laughs> we did get to learn some things. There was, as Aaron said, some significant kind of moments where people said things that uh, I think we'll hear about uh, going forward. So let's go through the candidates. Um, we'll start with Polyev. Uh, Aaron, the Bank of Canada stuff with the Tiff Macklin saying that he'd fire him and replace him, I suppose that's the headline? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, anytime you threaten to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, you're going to get the headline. Although it was curious, he, I mean, he sort of dropped it almost offhandedly at the start of the debate, and, and everyone kind of seemed to miss it until, you know, more than an hour later, Sheree was like, oh, hey, by the way, that thing where you said you were going to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, that's really dangerous, and, and we should talk about that. Uh, it's, it, 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 you know, it's, it's in keeping with his anti-establishment, anti-institutional uh, campaign and candidacy, right? It's, it's, you know, it's the convoy, it's cryptocurrencies, it's I'm going to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada. 
I'm going to fire all the gatekeepers, uh, you know, and freedom will reign. And, and, you know, this is, you know, this is, there's unhappiness in the, in the land and I'm going to sort of stick it to the powers that be. And, you know, so in that, in that regard, you know, that's sort of the politics of it. The actual, you know, kind of larger significance is that, you know, this isn't, this is just, isn't something that's really done very often with, you know, going after a politician going after the governor of the Bank of Canada to the point of threatening to fire him uh, if he's ever in power. You know, you have to go back 60 years to the coin affair involving Diefenbaker and the, and, and the governor of the Bank of Canada at the time. And that's not a moment that's really particularly well thought of or considered a very proud moment. So it's a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty shocking uh, position to take. Uh, but I do think it sets up you know, it, it, it sort of crystallizes, I think, the real kind of issue or uh, uh, question facing the party, which is, are you going to go down this road of, you know, populist, anti-elite, uh, anti-institutional uh, uh, politics of, you know, the convoy, cryptocurrencies, the governor of the Bank of Canada, you know, going after the governor of the Bank of Canada, are you going to go down that path or are you going to kind of try to walk it back in a different, different, in a different direction? You know, Sheree said, which I think was Sheree's probably strongest moment of the campaign, which was, you know, we don't, we're not supposed to be attacking institutions. Conservatives don't do that. And that's definitely one view of the Conservative Party. But I think Pierre Polyev would say, no, actually, this is what we do. We attack institutions. And that's what the Conservative Party should be. And I do think that is sort of the, the, the foundational debate that is, that is now before the party. Nice, Shannon. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was notable and disappointing that, and I'm connecting this to Polyev because this should be sort of one of his bread and butter pieces that nobody mentioned uh, housing, the cost of housing or the cost of living until I think the last like 30 seconds, he kind of threw in a, you know, a patented anti-gatekeeper. Um, line but to me he seems to be he is selling a feeling rather than a set of solutions or rather he's selling empathy with a set of feelings when he talks about gatekeepers everything from firing tiff macklin to this non these non-specific gatekeepers that are apparently getting in the way of building more housing stock and bringing prices down it's i mean none of those things really logically connect and he's more than smart enough to know that so what and and then when he connects it to the truckers and freedom and when he keeps hammering on that very general sort of capital f freedom notion when when i interviewed him for a profile a couple of months ago I, I said to him, um, and I realized after that it was pushing a button I didn't mean to push. He's very sensitive to the idea that he sounds American, that he sounds like an American kind of style politician, which wasn't actually what I was getting at. I sort of said, like, do you think there's a big market for that in Canada? It doesn't strike me as something that really resonates with the public here. It's a very American ideal and everything that kind of is packaged up in that. And he said, well, we'll see. And, and so to me, that's what he is that's what he's selling. That's what he is telling people he empathizes with just this idea of like, you have lost control of your life. And, and the logical question to that is in what, in what context, like please list off the ways in which Canadians are not in control of their lives and what you would do to change that. I wondered if that would become a less and less compelling prospect as things like vaccine mandates, mask mandates, things like that. Like we all have had our freedom circumscribed over the last two years. There's room to debate whether that was appropriate, whether it was effective, all those things. But as those things fall away, um, 
it's interesting to me that there is still this pervasive notion that he is apparently tapping into and people are excited by that people don't feel like they are in charge of their lives, that someone else is. And as Aaron says, it's that very broad anti-establishment approach. Um, and the Tiff Macklin thing was, is just kind of the most um, dramatic tip of the spear of that, I suppose. He was wearing a purple tie, uh, which, you know, you can read into that what you'd like. Uh, clearly, this the People's Party's uh, color. And a lot of what he said would have been very much at home at a leadership debate to replace Maxim Bernier. And when you see polls, you see that the kind of people who are supporting Polyev generally are far more present within people who would vote for the PPC than for the Conservatives. So it does raise a question of, is, is his game to try to get those voters back into the party? And then it opens up the whole question of, of what, it, it, what it could do in terms of those who are closer to the center. When he was on the defensive about his uh, comments about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, it seemed to be a moment when it was starting to catch up to him in a way that some of the things that he had said, which might go over well in the moment, in the longer term are pretty problematic and could prove to be serious vulnerabilities. Every candidate, I believe every candidate, and including, you know, Leslie Lewis, who brought it up, went after him on what he had said on, on uh, cryptocurrency. And Aaron, I don't know, do you, do you sense that this is something that maybe he's uncomfortable with? Because he, he seemed to be knocked off message and he seemed unsteady at that moment of the debate. Yeah, it felt like he, uh, you know, he's trying to, to be edgy and it felt like he had taken one step too far with the crypto stuff. Uh, and, you know, not just in, 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 as he claimed, trying to make the argument that people should be free to uh, use cryptocurrency and invest in cryptocurrencies, but that, that, that doing so would allow you to opt out of inflation. Uh, you know, it comes pretty close to being investment advice. And given what's happened in Bitcoin in the last uh, few weeks, it doesn't look very good. And uh, it, it, he, you know, he wasn't being just attacked on it. I mean, people were calling it crazy, right? You know, people were saying this is ridiculous. I think Patrick Brown referred to it as magic internet money. <laughs> and, uh, and Pierre Polyev was, was clearly uncomfortable defending his position. And I think probably because I don't know that he has been, has been put in as vulnerable as a position as he was last night on, on cryptocurrencies. And I don't know that he's necessarily comfortable uh, defending his own actions or words necessarily. You know, he's, He's, he's very good on the attack. Uh, he's very good at sort of trying to turn attacks around on people. But in this case, he just seemed, he, he didn't seem to have an answer. And I think he kind of knew it. And uh, it is, I don't know that it's necessarily going to keep him from winning this race, but it is a, it is a reminder that uh, everything he says in this campaign and everything he does is being filed away somewhere. And uh, if he thinks the conservatives are going to give it to him badly, if he thinks the conservatives gave it to him badly last night, I mean, the liberals will do it tenfold uh, whenever the next general election comes around. I wonder if he thought what I thought, and I'm wondering, I'm curious whether you guys thought it too. I thought the Bitcoin thing when it first came up, however many weeks ago, was just kind of a gambit. It just sort of seemed like a, a tossed off comment to like, I don't know, appeal to the Bitcoin constituency, whatever that is. And somehow it's become this recurring theme. I, I wonder if, if he feels like he sort of let a cat out of the bag that he's now chasing around the room. Like it, it just, it I seems think so bizarre. It, to me, it felt like he was, he has been trying to capture a very niche audience of internet, a, 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 an inter, a specific internet community that he wants to kind of uh, piggyback on mm -hmm. and co-opt and bring into the fold 
and use that to build up some support. But, you know, almost without anyone else in the broader non-Bitcoin, non-crypto community noticing or paying much attention to. And the problem is he, he hugged it a bit too tightly and everybody noticed. And then the Bitcoin world ran into the real world over the last little while and, it, and, it, and, it, and he got caught. And uh, I, I think he knew he was caught. Uh, like you could see it last night in just the way he was like, no, no, I was, I was just talking about how people should be free to choose these things. And then Leslin Lewis, to her credit, said, no, 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 you said it was a hedge against inflation. And at that point, he kind of crumbled. He, he sort of had to stammer his way through the rest of it because he's caught. And uh, I don't know whether he will take a lesson from this, but uh, he does have a certain tendency when he was in, in government to kind of get out over his skis a bit and take things one or two steps too far. And uh, I don't know whether that's, He's, he's, he doesn't seem to take the lesson that there's sort of a downside to that, but I think last night was a demonstration that if you go too far, if you aren't careful, uh, when you're doing all these things, you're going to get in trouble. There's always a possibility that, like a lot of people who invested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, was very excited about it and is now feeling a little bit regretful about that decision. Um, and there's always just that simple element, because it does seem like a strange thing to latch on to. And there's so many other different issues to get it, to talk a lot about cryptocurrency. Um, just, it, it almost seemed like it must have been something that he was personally interested in to take that kind of risk. Yeah. And he I, has, I mean, I think he has claimed, I can't remember when he went in the sequence of events, but I think he has claimed to be quite interested in it personally. Like I didn't, I seem to recall him talking to some Bitcoin podcaster and talking about like listening to the podcast late at night and like, being very interested in what this person had to say. And so like, it, there may be a genuine interest in this thing. <laughs> you know, it's just that when you say it out loud, people will hear you and they may check your comments to see whether they make any sense. It, it would be sort of amazing if the genesis of all this was a kind of normal human thing of, I'm really interested in this. <laughs> he spit it out in a public forum once and then everyone seized on it. And now it's a legitimate part. It was what, 10% of the debate time last night. <laughs> Um, I, I would nearly feel sorry for him if that was the case, but it, it's sort of like the whole thing is just kind of weird. Like we're, we're parsing what this means. It's possible. It means nothing. Yeah. Right. Well, it could be, turn out to mean, you know, trouble for him, I suppose. But uh, and also his bank account in case he actually did buy some Bitcoin. But yeah. uh, let's move on to some of the other candidates. So Jean Charest, um, what not as big of a factor in this one as the first debate, the unofficial debate, because I think Patrick Brown took up some of that energy that Jean Charest had and some of that focus that he would have had uh, from Pierre Poliev, you know, still going a lot of national unity, uh, talking a lot about the country being, you know, close to dissolution. You know, he's someone who has seen that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would doubt that we're anywhere close to where things were in 1995. But Shannon, did you, what did you get from his, his performance last night and what he was trying to get at? I think it's it's advantageous for his positioning and strengths to emphasize the divided nature of the country right now because one of his big calling cards I mean he has a couple is you know sort of being the adult in the room. I think he explicitly said at one point last night and also in the debate last week, you know, if you want to win, if you're tired of losing, I'm your guy. The idea is I've been there before, I've done it. Um, so, you know, I, I said on an interview last week like it's that's boring that sports analogy of winning being the best deodorant like he's trying to sell the idea of rally behind me if you just want to stop being in opposition um but but if you combine those two and the sort of 
the strengths he comes in with if if he emphasizes the idea that the country is in some way at risk or divided, which is probably true. It's certainly not true the way it was in the referendum era, but it's it's been a pretty hard couple of years. Then it, it puts him in a position to say, I'm the guy to deal with that. Um, he was a bit hot under the collar last night. He was a bit shouty at points, which I thought undercut. Um, it, it's sort of remarkable to watch him with the rest because I, I am too young or was covering or paying attention to other things when he was sort of big on the political stage. And whenever I see him amongst the others, I'm sort of struck by what a talented politician he is. I mean, that says nothing about the substance, but just he's good. He's good in that mode. And he has a very different mode than the others on the stage. And you saw him really trying to capitalize on that last night, but get, getting a bit kind of yelly and wound up, which I think undercuts the idea of being a kind of sober, moderate unifier. Um, last night was different from last week. Like last week, there was such a clear kind of line of electricity and tension between him and Polya, with the two of them going after each other, clearly each of them thinking the other one was either the front runner or their main competition. Last night, as you said, um, Polyev was, was like not a huge factor. I think the format didn't lend itself well to his kind of ankle biting. And, and Patrick Brown added into the mix was, was a different sort of thing. And, and some of his positions on policies and the way he talks about things sound a little bit like charade. So there was a little bit more of kind of a, a triangle or I don't know, whatever. I'm getting way out of my ge my knowledge of geometry here. <laughs> but there was there was a different alchemy. There was a different mix to it last night. Yeah, Aaron, do you think uh, Charé um, was trying to present himself as something a little bit different last night? It, it seemed to me that on a couple of moments, when he was talking with Roman Baber about lockdowns, uh, when he was talking about blockades, he seemed to be, uh, when he was talking about the blockades, specifically talking about you know the Windsor uh, crossing the border between the United States and Canada, not so much the what happened here in Ottawa, the people who were living in Ottawa, um, and then when it came to lockdowns, you know, he never disagreed with Roman Baver that lockdowns were, you know, worse than the pandemic, more or less. Uh, so it almost sounded like he was making sure not to say anything that went too much uh, against the Conservatives. Yeah, I think you can see little moments with Sheree where, you know, you can almost feel him going like, hey, I could be your second choice. For if, you're, if you like Roman Baver, I could be your second choice. For Leslie Lewis, I think you do it. You know, there are were, there were little moments like that where I, you can see him trying to not uh, alienate people or or trying to kind of uh, put out a bit of an olive branch to to other campaigns or to other people's supporters. So, I mean, I think that's just sort of that. I mean, I guess that kind of happens in every leadership race like this. I it, He does seem, it's interesting that Shannon mentions the, the shadiness. Uh, it is, does, it can feel like he's overcompensating at times and a bit defensive. Uh, there was a there was a rant last night about you know I'm not a hyphenated conservative and it's like yeah okay like if, if you have to say it you're, you're, you know you may be in a bit of trouble uh, but he does seem uh, he does seem sharper than when the campaign started I thought he looked uh, he looked a, a, out of his element to be honest and pretty rusty at the start of the campaign and he feels like he's he's found his footing to a certain degree he's definitely you know, trying to contrast himself with Polyev, but I don't know that he's really crystallized it into an argument for himself. Like he, you know, as Shannon says, he, he talks a lot about, you know, unity and not division. And, and he, there are little bits and pieces of an argument 
about who he is and who Polyev is and, and how they're different and, and, and what that would mean. But it, I don't know that he's really kind of wrapped it into a full argument yet about his candidacy and why you should pick him and, and why he would be, you know, it, it's not just the fact that he's not Pierre Polyev, you know, here's why you should, here's why Jean Charest would be a good leader. And I, I don't, I, I think that is still kind of missing from the, from the general argument. Like, I, I don't know that he's kind of, you know, I don't know what his, if you could describe his candidacy in a sentence, I don't know what it is exactly at this point. Like what's the elevator pitch kind of thing. Built to win. Yeah. Built to win, which really, really sounds like a slogan for a pickup truck, I have to say. Like really, hey, really does. Conservative leadership race. Um, That's true. Patrick Brown, let's move on to Patrick Brown. So this is, he wasn't there last time. Um, he, and he had to be here this time. It was part of the rules of the conservative leadership race. Either you would disqualify or you'd give up your 100,000 compliance deposit. I can't remember which one, but you had to attend. So Patrick Brown had to be there. Um, Aaron, did you, what did you make of him being there? It, it did add a different element. He was a little bit subdued. He wasn't uh, nearly as energetic as Poiliev or, or Charest, but um he brought something else, but I'm not exactly sure what it was. Yeah, I, I, I find his campaign, I mean, so much of it is his campaign, it's hard to figure because it's not being conducted loudly and, and publicly with, you know, huge rallies or anything. Uh, it, it's, you know, he seems to be going after very targeted audiences and small groups and signing up new members. And his, his approach to Polyev is interesting because it's, it's very rarely about Things Polyev has said during this campaign, or or thing, or 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 sort of policies that Polyev has put forward, it's a lot about like, hey, remember what Polyev said uh, mm -hmm. after the residential school settlement? Hey, remember how Pierre Polyev was part of a government that pursued a barbaric cultural practices hotline? It's a lot of like making the argument. It's it, it's an interesting argument, and it seems to be trying to make the argument that that Polyev is sort of damaged goods, like. Don't worry about the convoy or his cryptocurrency stuff or whatever or the banks stuff. What do you you know? Never mind what he say now about freedom. He's just damaged goods, and, and you should forget about it. And I, I find that an interesting approach to it. It, it. Like he's almost sort of ducking the fight now and just and just trying to kind of uh, run oppo research on on Polyev and and sort of wound him that way. He seems like a weird candidate to be doing that. Uh, considering his own background. Uh, Shannon, what did you make of, of Patrick Brown? Yeah, I, I found it straight. It, like when he mentioned last night, I forget exactly how he put it, but when he was leading into mentioning Polyev's comments quite some time ago about residential school uh, survivors and, and disparaging comments about Indigenous people, at first when he teed it up, I, I didn't, I thought, oh, did Polyev say something this week? Like because of the way he was contextualizing it, it sounded like a live issue. Um, which, I mean, fair enough, Polyev's been a, a public figure, you know, since he graduated from university, it's, it's fair to um, hold him to account for that record. But as Aaron says, it's a bit of a strange thing, like there's much you could disagree with in the present, in the present chapter of Polyev as, as a politician, and instead he's dredging up all this Harper era stuff. Um, I, I didn't know if he was trying to sort of push a button there but this is not the right audience right like in a, in a general election if you push the harper is lurking but maybe you get a sugar rush from a certain constituency of people but not not from this crowd um yeah he it's funny I, I feel like we're all sort of grasping at trying to make sense of his campaign and his presence i mean at least he is a presence now as opposed to an absence he's been sort of this strange like you know, like the, the Kool-Aid guy, like cut out in the wall up until now, it's just been like Patrick Brown goes here. 
Um, there was that bizarro comment he put out after the last debate. Uh, I think it was a fundraising email where he said, you know, the pundits are declaring I won by not showing up and I'm so busy signing up members, which is interesting because um, the story is that like his prowess or one of them as a politician is membership drives. It is bringing people out, um, sort of appealing to different audiences and signing new people up. But it also feels like it's become a bit of a crutch that his campaign is leaning on anytime they get called out for the perception that he has not been visible, has not made himself available, is not sort of speaking for himself. It gets waved away with, well, he's just very busy signing up members, which is fine. I mean, that, that is at the end of the day what these things rest on. And there is the sort of strange kind of structural realities of a conservative leadership race. But at a certain point, whether it's fair or not, it starts to look like you've put yourself underground. Um, so it was interesting to see him come above ground, but for there not to be a clear thing to be made of, of like who he was, what argument he was advancing, that sort of thing. When you think about his path to victory, you do wonder about the longevity of it, because one of the reasons I think that, you know, he was taken down as leader of the Ontario PCs is that I, I think that within the party, he was seen as a little bit of a, a usurper who signed up a lot of people who were not with the party before. And then all of a sudden this guy becomes leader. You could imagine the same thing kind of happening, that if he managed to win this, there would be a lot of people kind of questioning whether he, his victory was legitimate. And it's hard to imagine his, his leadership being um, <clears throat> strong for the long term, but you can tell that he is that kind of guy because I found he was a little uncomfortable now and then with some of the messages he was saying, but the time when he sounded the most confident and the most sure of what he was saying was when he was talking about strengthening the riding associations, getting new members signed up and how that helped the Ontario PCs in the last election. It was the moment of the debate where to me, he sounded the most like, I know what I'm talking about here. I have a message here. So in a way he does sound like a, an organizer who is trying to run a party, but I guess there's a question of whether that can work in the long term. But yeah, it's an odd. It, you would know this. You would know this better off the top of your head. But I don't believe he has many caucus endorsements. And it's, no, it's just a couple. He has he has Michelle Rempel Garner, which is a big one, and but he doesn't have a lot in terms of numbers. But there's and there's also not. I don't. I, it's. I, I think Charade's campaign is a bit clearer about what it's about. But I don't know that. You know, Patrick Brown makes an appeal to sort of, you know, courting a diverse electorate and bringing in new, new uh, people into the party. But I don't know that there's a necessarily a kind of ideological argument he's making for himself. Uh, let's move on to Leslie Lewis. Um, seemed to be a little bit. I, I there were more moments in the first debate where I think she said things that made her sound like she was very far to the right of the party. This debate, she seemed a little bit more. Um, within the kind of range of normal conservatism within the party as it exists now. Um, Shannon, what did you make of, of Leslie Lewis's uh, performance in the debate? I, I didn't think it was great. I, I just thought she sounded back on her heels so much at different points. I, I realized, you know, we spent the first 10 minutes kind of mocking the weird format of this um, and they all dealt with it in different ways or to different degrees. But even when the questions were more obvious and expected, she she sounded like she was grasping for messaging or for like an actual thing to say. And I don't mean that there was like no thought in her head, but it was like she was running her talking points. And um, it was that sort of painful thing of, of watching her grasp for what was coming next. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, your thesis is interesting. Maybe those two pieces fit together. Maybe someone advised her to moderate a bit after the last debate or, or to kind of tug herself in a particular direction. So maybe the stumbling we saw was her trying to sort of inhabit a slightly different space. I just, I, I didn't think it was great. Um, yeah, she, she, she did seem the least comfortable. Yeah. A hundred percent. I wonder too about the French language debate coming up. Um, she just, there were moments like, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's a lighter than air, very stupid one, but the one where they were asked what they were listening to and she said jazz. And then she was asked for her favorite. I mean, I'm being very cheap, but that was like an extreme example of that kind of stumbling and stuttering and like, like what's, what's in your head. Just, just tell us what's in your head, what's in your heart, like what's going on there kind of thing. It, it wasn't great. In her defense, I'm, I also like jazz a lot, but if you ask me what my favorite artist was, I'd say Spotify playlist. Um, so that's <laughs> where enough. I am when it comes to jazz. But Aaron, what did you make of Les Lewis? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think well, I think both of you have covered a lot of terrain on her. I mean, I, the, the, the only things, so two things stuck out to me about her last night. One was she got a chance to completely own the pro-life position in that quick go around about, you know, what you would do about abortion legislation. She was the only one, you know, it stood out that she was the, the pro-life candidate. Uh, and and the other thing was that again, like for, for the second week in a row, she made a point of going after Polyev uh, and uh, this time on the Bitcoin stuff. And, and she ended up sounding, you know, whereas last week it was, I love the convoy more than you do. I'm a harder edged conservative than you are. This time it was like, you know, you have gone too far with this crypto stuff. You need to be uh, like, you need, you need to be reasonable and realistic and responsible. And so I, I like, it's, it's interesting to me that she's trying to carve this position, some space out for herself as, as, you know, not just a social conservative candidate or, you know, not just maybe a, a, a kingmaker for any of the other candidates, but a, as a, as a, like, I'm going to take you on and I'm going to throw some shots and maybe do some serious damage to what you're running on. Uh, I, I, I would not have expected that at the start of this campaign. And, and I don't quite know where it's going to lead, but I, it's interesting to, to me nonetheless. Um, how about the other two, Roman Baber, Scott Aitchison, uh, you know, consensus fifth and sixth, you can place whichever one you'd like. Um, I'm not sure what role they have in this. Uh, Scott Aitchison, you know, seemed like the most calm, reasonable person there, but not really all that much into the debate. He he reserved his paddles, so he had lots of paddles by the end of it. Um, and That's I just have the for him the problem is who's putting him first. Uh, he'll he'll he could be a lot of people second, but it doesn't get anywhere if you're the first. Yeah, and then but, Roman Baber. But that's come through in the, in this in these leadership races before, right? The weird structure of the way they vote is offending no one and being a bunch of people's second choices can work out for you. I'm not saying that's actually that that's the strategy he's pursuing or that it will work, but the way these races work on points, that's not a terrible idea. He he he's an interesting figure to me because he has been, I would I think, almost entirely unknown to everyone, but he comes across in a lot of ways as the most sort of nuanced, um, confident, calm, thoughtful person on the stage. Like there was almost a statesman-like kind of um, presentation to it, which is interesting for, and also ran, like as you're saying, a fifth and sixth place. Um, he he kind of leaves room for disagreement. Um, he just, I thought he came across as very thoughtful. I, I would have been more interested in more free-for-all debate segments that he could have been part of because it just feels like it would have elevated the conversation a bit. He does in a way feel like if you're thinking about like a U.S. primary, 
that governor who is, you know, third, fourth, and and just kind of there. And uh, it's it's about everybody else making lots of noise. But he does have a strange kind of role in this because it's not usually the people who finish last and he might finish last. I don't know. He might finish ahead of Roman Baber, I suppose. But there is it, it, it feels like he would be in a different race, more of a potential contender. But as you said, I literally did not know who he was before I heard that he was running in the campaign. I think I'd seen his name once somewhere. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure. Aaron, what do you, what do you make either Baber or Aitchison? Yeah, I was going to say like Aitchison to me, his, 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 come on, let's be reasonable. Let's not be nasty. Uh, uh, you know, we have to be serious. I think that shtick uh, probably wore itself out last night. And I, like, I think it has to reach a point where it's like, okay, so you say you want to be reasonable and respectful and you don't want to be nasty. Like, what exactly does that mean? Do, is there anyone on this stage that you think should be leader? Like who, what, what say something other than, you know, let's be nice, let's be respectful. What else have you, what's the rest of the argument? Well, and uh, let's be with, respectful isn't a policy suggestion, right? Yeah. Like it's not, what do you do with that if, if you win or what is your proposition to win? Yeah, the uh, civility party doesn't really win a lot of elections. No. Uh, although, <laughs> although maybe, yeah, maybe this is the moment. Uh, I, I, Roman Baber, I, like, it's, you know, so that's a guy, Roman uh, gets kicked out of the, the PC caucus in Ontario because he is anti-lockdown and Doug Ford has no tolerance for him. And I do, I, it feels like he's becoming a minor star now in the federal conservative firmament. And you can, like, it, it, he has, he sort of owns the anti-lockdown, even if no one wants to disagree with him on lockdowns. He now seems to kind of own the, I was, I, I really, really hate public health restrictions. Uh, and that's sort of his shtick. And uh, you can, he's going to end up being, uh a star candidate for the federal conservative somewhere. They're going to have to run him somewhere, and he's going to have to. He's going to have some presence in the party. I mean, I guess maybe if Sheree wins, maybe that doesn't happen. But like you can see, Polyev putting him uh, on the back bench somewhere or running him as a star candidate. It's a pretty. It's an odd turn of events where where someone can be kicked out of the Ontario PC party for being too extreme, and then become a minor star with the federal conservatives. And. Just as a, a complete aside, going back to Aitchison, uh, it is kind of funny when you think about the positions that they are taking within the party as maybe the, you know, the reddest Tories kind of thing, um, that it was Scott Aitchison and Jean Charest, the only ones who got the sad trombone at the Conservative leadership debate. Uh, so I think that might signify something. Okay, I, I, we're going long, so I want to just do a, a quick kind of thing just because we're in the middle of it. So I'd please like to Please don't ask just... me what I'm binge watching or please don't do a lightning round like that. I really don't want to. I watched, I finished, is it cake? Um, so oh, the best. <laughs> it, it was pretty good and it was often cake, but um, the Ontario Don't election. Spoil it for me. <laughs> sorry. Sometimes it's cake, Aaron. Uh, the Ontario yeah. election. Wa watching it from Ottawa from a federal perspective, do either of you have some, some, some thoughts about how it's unfolding, what it means for uh, politics in Ottawa. Aaron, I don't know if you want to go first. Just what's your take so far on this debate, on this uh, campaign? How it's unfolding? I mean, it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me that Doug Ford's brand is holding up as well as it did, given the sort of plummets it had before the pandemic or during the pandemic, and and how low it had gotten before the pandemic. I thought it would revert back to sort of this pre-pandemic state. Uh, I think it's clear from this campaign, I don't know if this will matter so much on the federal scene by 2025, but like, it's pretty clear that the pandemic is kind of a secondary issue, oddly enough, at this point, that people want to talk about things going forward. 
Uh, I think it's, you know, the stasis in the polls may change over the next couple of weeks, but it, it look at this point, you would have to say that sort of the uh, willingness of voters to kind of give first term governments a second term is going to kind of win out here. And with the exception of the Liberals, the Ontario Liberals coming back to life and, and the Ontario NDP maybe falling flat again, I don't know that there's going to be a huge change. I mean, I think the biggest implication for this election, and we won't really know about it until after, is what it's going to mean for housing, affordability, and and to a certain extent, the federal liberals are going to have to, are, are going to have, are, you know, a lot of, if the federal liberals want to solve the housing issue, it's going to have to go through the Ontario government to a certain extent. And I think that's the outstanding issue, but I don't know that this election is necessarily going to solve that. Yeah, I, I mean, you would, nothing happens in a vacuum, right? So the fortunes of Doug Ford's conservatives have a direct relationship to how strong a campaign the NDP and the Liberals put up, which I think so far hasn't been great. Um, you would have thought that in the depths of whichever wave of the pandemic you want to choose, because there's been so many, that prosecuting the case of Doug Ford not being a great premier or the PCs not handling the pandemic well. And I would argue that um, the provincial level was sort of the most relevant and direct, that level of, of policy and rules for, for managing the pandemic. Um, you would have thought that would be an easy case to prosecute, but I don't think either the NDP or the Liberals are doing a great job of, of doing that. But also it, it kind of feels like because the pandemic moment is kind of over, I know people differ on that, but like we are, there's no doubt we have moved out of that acute phase and it was a rough grind of a couple of years. My sense is that it's the kind of thing people just want to put behind them. I, I thought, and this is just my back of the, not even back of the napkin, this is just my intuition, that the federal liberals, when they called that election last summer and the idea was that they could thump their chests over getting everyone who wanted it as many vaccines as they wanted, I didn't think they were going to get much mileage out of that because people would just say, fine, you did your job in the middle of a horrible emergency. Like, what do you want, a hero cookie? But I think the flip side of that is, is that having arguably not done their job super well, I'm not sure if it's going to stick to the PCs because, or to Ford, because people just want to move on. And, and that's maybe not great. Um, or maybe it's fair because I don't know, how do you, how does anyone manage an emergency? But um, it just feels like there is a lot of, like you use the word stasis. It just feels like those poll numbers are just kind of magnetic and they just kind of keep reverting. There's still a month to go, um, but so far, and, and, and there's so much to be said about affordability and housing at the provincial level. And so far the policy proposals I've seen are sort of tinkering. They're kind of weird. I, I would take particular aim at Stephen Del Duca's liberals. Like some of their affordability measures are just ridiculous like they're not useful like no hst on prepared foods under 20 dollars. like how how is that helping anyone um anyway i'm being mean but um I, I don't know it's just it's a very weird kind of empty campaign so far to me uh just a quick thought of, from both of you on this you know given ontario's history that it tends to vote differently federally provincially uh given the pretty decent relationship between the Trudeau liberals and the Ford PCs over the last little while, especially with Christia Freeland, his good friend. Um, Aaron, do, you, do the federal liberals care who wins this? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think in a, in a way they probably don't want, uh, they probably don't want a liberal government in Ontario. Like, I don't know that they're going to go out of their way to make that happen, but uh, you know, if, 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 you know, you imagine that the next federal election is going to be in 2025. 
and you have to win big in Ontario, do you want there to voters to all re- to also have a, a liberal government in Ontario that they might not like or or that they might be willing to to look to kind of change things up and and counterbalance against? Uh, I do, you know, I mean, I think the the other so that that I think is the sort of basic political calculation. I think the other calculation, as I said earlier, is on housing, and that is, you know, you whoever you get in there you want to be able to cooperate with them on sort of fixing the housing market in Ontario. And uh, I don't know that there's one party necessarily that's uh, uh, better, that's making a better offer of that in Ontario at this point. Even the, the, the Ontario government, the federal government rather, has at least found a way to work with Ford's government. Uh, you know, you, you think back to four years ago when Doug Ford was slapping stickers on gas pumps to complain about the carbon tax, and now He's talking about how him and Christopher Freeland are BFFs. Uh, it's a heck of a sea change, but I think it shows that Doug Ford's kind of transactional, right? Like he, if there's something in it for him, he's willing to, to do what needs to be done. If you if you show up and have dinner with him and and you know get along, he'll he'll he's willing to do business with you. So, I mean, I think that that's probably in the back of their mind. But I the the, the political the, the basic political calculus is probably that a situation in 2025 is better for them if there's a if there's a pc government in ontario yeah shannon um i don't know if i have any more intelligent thoughts about that um <laughs> i i just i don't know i i'm just i'm i'm waiting to see somebody put something big on the table like i'm waiting to see some direction so that, i mean i know reporters are prone to looking for narrative sometimes to to our detriment sometimes where there isn't one. But I don't have a sense of the through line of the campaign yet. And I don't mean the horse race, like who's gonna pull ahead. I just mean, like, what is this about? It still feels like there's a lot floating in the air and even the public hasn't crystallized their sense of, of what this is about, which might be a factor of exhaustion. I wondered how much that played into the federal election last fall. Like there's only so much you can ask of people who have no bandwidth left. Um, my pet theory has been that we haven't paid enough attention to how much individual sort of emotional and psychological states have figured into public life. Maybe people are just kind of like, I have to vote for another one. Like I have to do this again and do some homework and think about this and go line up at a school in my neighborhood. Like, are you kidding me? We're heading into summer, a summer that might look normal. Um, you know, voters are still people. And I, I just, it just feels like the election's kind of there humming away in the background, but no one, not even the chattering classes like us are really paying a ton of attention to it. Um, which again, there is still time for that to kind of come to a bit of an apex. But right now it just kind of, it feels very ephemeral to me. Yeah, uh, there's, I think it was a few days after the election that I realized, oh, I'm gonna actually have to vote. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of it as some some event that was taking place that I was going to write about. I'd forgotten that I live in Ontario and that I am going to vote. So uh, maybe that's a fixed election date. It just has to roll around and it has to happen. And there's not always a good reason for it. And when it's, uh, I guess, as we saw in the last election, when you choose the election date, there can also feel that feeling that there's not a good reason for the election to be happening. But So we'll see what happens in Ontario. The Conservative leadership race is going to continue for several more months. Uh, the Ontario one will just be done in about three weeks, but I appreciate you both coming on and uh, sharing your thoughts. And I look forward to speaking to you both again. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. Thanks again to Aaron and Shannon. And that'll be it for the RIT podcast this week. Just a reminder that 
During the Ontario election, I am releasing weekly bonus episodes of The Writ Podcast that are available to subscribers of TheWrit.ca only. So if you'd like to listen to those episodes, please head over to the site to subscribe. All right, until next week, thanks for listening.